welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. We have a very special guest joining us for the second time, a professor from LSU Shreveport here in the United States, Alexander Mika Baridze. Hey, hello, hello, everyone. Yeah, hey, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate it, and I, I got your name right twice, correct? <laughs> you slowly, <laughs> but correctly pronounced it, yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I got it right. Um, now, yeah, my Katusov episode was a hit. I uh, thank you for doing that one. In fact, I had professors from other universities reach out to me and say, great job on that one. So, Oh, I'm glad to hear. Uh, he's uh, Kutuzov is a fascinating uh, figure. And, uh, you know, the book that I wrote about him, uh, uh, it, it took a while to kind of convince Oxford to do it. But I think the book has done very well. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to kind of uh, say uh, that it, it won uh, the book of the year from the Society for Military History. So I guess Kutuzov is getting uh, his recognition belatedly. <laughs> very, yeah, very good, very good. And uh, yeah, you can go on Amazon to get any of Alexander's books. I'm reading one now, The Battle of the Berezina, which is fantastic. Um, another one I have is The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History. So a lot of good books by Alexander out. If you want to go on Amazon and order one, I highly recommend it. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Okay. Well, let's jump into De Tolle. Um, he was born to a German-speaking noble family in Latvia. And oddly enough, his ancestors were Scottish. Um, and his father served in the Russian army. That's, <laughs> that's a lot of different nationalities going on right there. Um, sounds like a real, his family at least, was a real worldly family. Um, yes. Um, and I think that's, it's not surprising because um, he, you know, this is the kind of reality of the early modern Russian Empire, or where um, the the Russian rulers, starting with Peter the Great, and even before, but especially with Peter the Great, actively solicited foreign output um, experts, so to speak, mm -hmm. or, or specialists, uh, in order to help them modernize Russian military, Russian state. And one of the individuals um, who ultimately will uh, end up serving in uh, Russian state will will be Barclay. And so uh, Barclay de Tolly was born in uh, December of 1761 in modern-day um, Riga, uh, mm -hmm. but he grew up actually in St. Petersburg, uh, and, and that's kind of re the reflection of his father, uh, right, making a, a crucial decision of entering Russian service. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but they were German-speaking, though, at home, correct? Yes, and, and he reflects, again, even though the family is originally um, from Aberdeenshire, uh, or Aberdeenshire, I guess, in, in Scotland, mm -hmm. uh, by, the, by the time Barclay de Tolly comes, comes around in, in, in 18th century, mid-18th century, uh, the family has largely lost its Scottish identity and has become more of a Livonian identity, and therefore... Uh, it is German speaking, and it, it, I think it's appropriate to classify them, uh, classify them as part of the Livonian German, German elite. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed, uh, one of the issues that um, Barclay de Tolly will be confronted with later on and throughout his really service in the army is perception that he was not uh, a quotation kind of marks Russian, but rather a foreigner, a German. And the right. fact that he spoke German fluently and, and Russian kind of broken language um only helped that perception right right well it's interesting i was reading up on him uh looks like two of his brothers also served in the army yeah and then it's again a, a, a reality that for a, an elite 
for an, a, a kind of a children of the elite in, in Russian Empire, there were very few outlets for their talents and skills. And I, that's mm -hmm. I think I discussed that especially in detail in the biography of Kutuzov, because Kutuzov is insane is in the same kind of experiences at Barclay de Tolly, um, that as a son of a nobleman, you can't, for example, in, indulge yourself in, in, in being a professional writer or a poet or an artist. Um, you can't really pursue a legal career or a career in, in, in some other sphere. Your career is, is predetermined in, in, in the sense that you will be in a service to the state. Mm. And that will be either an, a diplomatic career and a foreign service, or it will be, as, as most cases, a military career. Okay. So, uh, you know, for, for Kutuzov and for Barakal Tetoli, I think their careers are predestined in, in that they, they were in the ranks of Russian nobility and they had to join the military to really further their, their careers. Okay. Yeah, it looks like he, you know, moving on the story, he joins, a, looks like a Carboneer Regiment in 1776. And um, from there, um, Looks like he works his way up slowly in the ranks. Yes, and st steadily. I think slowly but steadily. Uh, and of course, uh, both Kutuzov and Barclay de Tolly will be uh, serving in the Russo-Turkish or Russo-Ottoman Wars in seventeen, uh, early 1790s, mm -hmm. uh, where Barclay de Tolly uh, distinguished himself uh, in the siege and capture of Ochakov, the great Ottoman fortress in, in, in the Crimea, where Kutuzov was actually wounded. And Barclay de Tolly... Uh, distinguished himself so uh, 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 to to the degree that he was uh, actually introduced to the uh, Gregory Potemkin, right, the one-time lover of Empress Catherine, but now, mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, in many respects, the architects of the Russian imperial expansion, and Potemkin personally congratulates and and rewards uh, Barclay de Tolly. So uh, here you have kind of a, a, a budding officer. Um, but he didn't stay in the Crimea for long. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, shortly after the capture of um, Ochakov, and there is a second kind of storming at Ackerman, uh, Barclay de Tolly sent to a, a, a different front um, uh, because at the same time, the uh, Russians were fighting not just the Turks, but also the Swedes. Right. And so he sent to uh, to the Baltic frontier uh, in 1789, but it, it's, it was, um, shall I say, uneventful, right? So mm -hmm. the fighting was limited. Uh, uh, and but but Barkaditoli was involved in 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 action against the Swedes. Right. So it's worth mentioning it because later on, of course, in 1808, 1809, he will really kind of extol and really re rise as as a prominent commander by fighting Swedes in in Finland. Right. And, and you know, in even after that, in the Polish campaign, I think it's interesting that. He's becoming familiar with this territory. You know, he, he's starting to know it really well because he's on so many fronts. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, and and he, these are kind of the, the service against the Ottomans um, and, and then the Swedes are his baptisms by fire. So mm. this is where kind of his mindset of, of, you know, what makes a good officer, his experiences, his, right, that will shape his later on decisions will all be forged. Um, and the late, uh, you know, after the Russo-Swedish War ends in 1790, he continues service and then participates in the uh, Polish partitions uh, yep. that Russia engineered in 1790. Yep. And he indeed distinguished himself in the capture of the uh, nowadays Lithuanian capital city 
uh, of Vilnius back then. It's the Vilna. Um, yep. uh, so he is an active participant in uh, in in the uh, in Russian imperial aggrandizement, uh, along the many kind of the great officers of of his generation. Right. Uh, and by the end of the th this third partition, uh, Barkalyatoli will be already a lieutenant colonel. So right. he's already risen right from being a cornet, which is kind of you know a basic uh, rank in, in the army from Korea right. in 1778 to lieutenant colonel in 1794 which is pretty good as, yeah it's a decent right record six yeah. years yeah, yeah yeah and then you know i was reading he's an aide-de-camp to several you know major officers so he's learning this whole time you know and like you said he's also serving at the front so baptism by fire uh and then it looks like from there he, he gets promoted again Looks like 1799 to uh, a major general. Yes, um, he is promoted um, uh, to in 1799, um, uh, and and actually uh, this is again remember this is the period of uh, Pauline or you know Emperor Paul's reforms yep. transformations, yep. and part of it uh, and the Pope came to power by the way in 1796 in November, and as part of the reforms uh, that Paul introduced was the reform to purge the army of superfluous officers of uh, kind of dead weight mm. so, and this is where the perception of paul being this mad czar who did uh, a lot of foolish things is, is misplaced because some of the reforms that paul did were actually needed and and and, 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 and kind of institutionally important and barclay totally benefits from it uh, and then the promotion to major general that you referred to in march of 1799 is actually as a result of an inspection that shows that his regiment is among the best maintained best managed in the army which is important uh, considering what the Russia is doing at the time. So think about this. 1799 is the period when um, uh, Russia is involved in the war of the Second Coalition, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, you have Suvorov in Russia, huh? yep. army yep. In, in Italy. You have the likes of Peter Bagration and Mikhail Miloradovich, these bright names that will come out of that campaign, right? By the time the... They came back, Bagration and Miloradovich was on the, on, the, on the lips of everyone in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, Barkay Datoli, by comparison, was not involved in that campaign, and therefore he missed that chance to shine. Yeah, and, and, and jumping ahead, he, was he, he wasn't an Austerlitz either, was he? Um, again, that's right. Um, when, uh, when the war began, um, this is the war of the Third Coalition between mm -hmm. Russia uh, and Austria on one side and France on the other. We know that um, Russia mobilized well over 100,000 men, which were uh, grouped in several armies. One army was the army that commanded uh, Kutuzov commanded that was sent to Bavaria to support the main Aust Austrian thrust against Napoleon. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, there was a, a second army to the north that was commanded by Benningsen. And uh, Barclay de Tolly commanded a brigade in Benningsen's army which mm -hmm. meant that Benningson's was never part of that massive kind of campaign that took place in, in Bavaria and then Austria uh, that culminated in the Russian defeated Austerlitz. So, mm -hmm. uh, so once again, maybe to the, maybe it was a good thing for Barclay that he missed the, uh, certainly Austerlitz, but he also missed out on uh, an opportunity to shine during the Russian retreat from Branau in, in Bavaria to Austerlitz. Uh, because during that retreat, which will become kind of a, a, a shining page in the Russian military history, 
once again, Bagration, Miloradovich, and others uh, distinguished themselves at places like Amstetten or at uh, Holabrun, Schongraben, of course, that famous stand that Bagration did by holding off the uh, advance guard of, of Murat and Lan, right. sacrificing much of his force but saving the army. I mean, this is a scene that Tolstoy will later on immortalize, right? Well, right. Barclay de Tolly is not present there, and therefore mm. he's once again misses out. So his first real meeting with Napoleon, I, I believe, was the Battle of Pultusk in December of 1806. And I've read about this battle uh, several times, and it seems like it was just kind of a mess. Like nobody's even sure who won that battle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, um it, 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 uh, so technically, it's not even his first encounter with Napoleon because Napoleon, of course, um, did not personally command the right. units at, at, at Pultusk. Um, but um, Barclay um was indeed present in this battle uh, at, at Pultusk, and it is a slugfest. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's, of course, fought in late December. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've traveled to Eastern Europe in late December, <laughs> <Not>. <laughs> especially in, in Poland, but yeah. it's it's not pretty. It's cold. It's of course snowy, and you know the presence of these two massive armies um, denuded the countryside of 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 whatever whatever was there. Provisions, and, yeah. I, uh, I have a great quote from Marbeau. Yeah, uh, it rained and snowed incessantly. Provisions became scarce. No more wine. Hardly any beer. And what there was was exceedingly bad. No bread and quarters for which we had to fight the pigs and the cows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. End quote. Yeah. And yeah. yeah and, and Bennington was on the scene as well. Did the two men get along to Tolle and Bennington? Uh, well, at this time, uh, Bennington is the, is, a, uh, is the commander in chief, or at least the commander of the corps. He, he will be soon enough commander in chief. Mm -hmm. uh, and Barclay Tolle is, is one of the commanders under him. So he has no choice but to get along with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and the the battle uh, will will be fought on December twenty six. Um, you'll have kind of uh, about thirty five thousand Russians against about twenty seven thousand French, uh, uh, and uh, Russians will stay on more on defensive. The French will keep attacking, and uh, Barclay de Tolly uh, is is among the first uh, to to bear the brunt of these attacks. Um, uh, him he commanded the forward elements of of the. Of, of the Bennington's corps, and he fought the French at Sohochin, at Colosomb, and then at Pultusk. He essentially uh, held uh, one of the one of the uh, positions, uh, and successfully so, since uh, the continued attacks of of Marshal Lan uh, mm -hmm. all resulted in in the French uh, units being uh, driven back, and ultimately, uh, you know, the Russians could claim victory because they they held to the positions right but the french of course didn't claim the victory because ultimately later that night bennington decided to retreat from the uh, from the battlefield and hence right. left the battlefield in the french uh, right and from there three months later another slugfest that they totally was involved in which is the battle of Eilau. Um, yes, but I, I do want to mention one important element. Kind of, sure. This is where the, can, the making of, of, uh, of Barclay de Tolly as, as a commander-in-chief is that uh, from retreat from Pultusk to Eilau, Barclay de Tolly was uh, in charge of the rear guard, mm. uh, or at least one of the elements of rear guard, since the, the main rear guard was under command of the Bagration. 
Uh, and it is uh, Barclay de Tully who distinguished himself uh, uh, at the really heated action at Hof on the eve of Eilau. And mm -hmm. kind of, despite being in a uh, really bad position and his troops uh, fatigued and lacking the basic essentials, uh, uh, Barclay de Tully was able to hold off the French for much of the day. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think this is where you kind of see his star slowly rising about the horizon. Uh, you know, the actions at Pultusk and then Hof bring mm -hmm. attention to him. Mm -hmm. um, Bagration writes uh, effusively about uh, Barclay de Tully as, as a capable tactical commander. This point is becomes important in light of what Barclay de Tully will do in 1812. Right. Which will be effectively pursue this asymmetrical, protracted, right, defensive war against Napoleon. And so the question then becomes, was it something that he's been thinking of since 1807 or, or is it, you know, the events of 1812 is simply the sheer reality of him uh, being unable to stop uh, a, a grand army of more than half a million men, right? So this is where we get really an interesting uh, discussion, how much, how much of it was caused by reality, how much was it a, a careful planning on, on Barclay's part. Okay. And he gets promoted to uh, lieutenant general. Um, uh he is um, so. There, there is an kind of, I think, an important point there. Um, he's promoted to lieutenant general for the for his performance in the campaign as such. So, in mm. fact, in addition to lieutenant general, he's given the orders of Saint George and Vladimir and Anna. So, this is kind of recognition that is coming his way. He is also, uh, which is no less important, is is elevated in terms of command. He's given command of an entire division, the 6th Infantry Division. Mm. But there is a, a, a one incident in his, um, um, in his kind of career that is uh, at this time. So when he was in, injured at um, Eilau, mm. he was at a hospital and he was recuperating. And there he had a meeting with a, a, a German officer. And the German officer uh, later on wrote down in his kind of uh, writings, in his memoirs, that con uh, while conversing with um, Barclay de Tully, uh, Barclay complained about the overall strategy that the Russian high command was pursuing against Napoleon. Mm. And he said we should not, in, in essentially Bar Barclay tells him that we should not be pursuing uh, this offensive, kind of, you know, going go out and engage Napoleon, but rather we need to fight a protracted asymmetrical warfare against uh, the French. Mm -hmm. The goal would be to draw the enemy further away from his operational bases, right. to exhaust him through raids and you know, asymmetrical attacks, and then ultimately wait for a moment when his forces are uh, weak, depleted, through strategic uh, attrition and so on. Yeah. And then we can strike back. I think that's an important point, you know, that you can win a war without winning battles. And, you know, George Washington did that during the American Revolution. You know, he first couple of battles he lost, but he always kept, you know, an army in the field to keep the pressure on the British. Yes. So mm -hmm. I, I think you're, I think they totally has a great point there, you know, to, you know, weaken Napoleon, draw him further away from his supply bases, and then win the war over the long haul. Yeah, and, and this becomes particularly interesting. This by the end of the eighteen oh seven, there is already uh, rumors of a, of a war between uh, Russia and, uh, and Sweden, and of course that is the consequence of the famous meeting between Emperor Alexander and uh, Napoleon at Tilsit. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the Treaty of Tilsit, um, as, as we as we know, the two emperors effectively partitioned Europe into two spheres of influence. And um, Alex receives assurance, the Fran- uh, Napoleon's assurance, that he has kind of free hand in in Scandinavia, or at least in the eastern mm-hmm. part of it. Uh, and, and he decides to uh, uh, exploit this opportunity to um, grab Finland. Of mm. course, Finland at the time was part of Sweden, right. which entails an all-out war with 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 uh, Sweden, and so the war begins in early 1808. Mm-hmm. And Barclay de Tolly, is, as a division commander, is uh, actually assigned to the separate expeditionary corps that was sent to invade Finland. Mm-hmm. So he is leading one of these divisions along with uh, uh, Bagration, fellow again a rival and a fellow commander. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Barclay de Tolly's uh, uh, actions in 1808-1809 uh, during this Russo-Swedish War is, I think, uh, are uh, good examples of what he's capable of as the tactical operational commander. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because this is essentially the only time where he can uh, uh, be, uh, on at least on operational level, a commander of his own because later on in 1812 right his hands are hammered but right yeah so it's it's his first real independent command i I would say so even though there is you know he's part of a a a core and and he uh he needs to take a follow the overall plan but as a divisional commander he has a a a bigger um uh, freedom to act and Mm -hmm. he is uh you know he's the one in, in in responsible for occupation for occupying uh, the province of Savolax and, and the uh, the city of Kupio in, in, in central Finland. He is the one who um, uh, organizes defense of Kupio in late 1808 and successfully repels two Swedish offensives. Mm-hmm. Uh, then uh, he kind of gets sick um, and, and for a while he has, has to leave. But he comes back in, in early 1809 mm-hmm. and he's given um, a, a command of a uh, so-called Vasa Corps, and this Vasa Corps is uh, is responsible for attempting for a remarkable uh, uh, operation. And in in early 1809, the Russian command decides to attempt an audacious expedition. Uh, they need to bring uh, Sweden to its knees, right? They want to knock Sweden out of war, and so mm-hmm. Alexander appro- uh, Emperor Alexander of Russia approves a, a three-pronged attack against Sweden from Finland. Mm-hmm. One will be f- to depart from Turku. To the island islands and then straight to stockholm this is across the kind of semi-frozen uh gulf the yep. second one will be from middle of gulf of bosnia from the city of vasa and that's where barclay de Tolly is from vasa to umea to strike central uh swedish provinces and the third core will be sent or uh, essentially on a roundabout uh, 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 around the northern parts of bosnia mm-hmm. now the most challenging part of this expedition is the crossing of bosnia from vasa to umea because right. there is the kind of the open space of nothing but ice right uh, and this is where uh, barclay de Tolly commands and so in uh, uh in march of 1809 this vasa corps with uh, uh, ben- uh with barclay de Tolly leading it makes the crossing of the so-called kvarken and carries the cavalry artillery successfully makes it across, reaches yeah. uh, Swedish mainland and captures the city of Umea, which forces Swedes to negotiate. So All I mean, right. it's All right. a, a great exploit. I, I couldn't yeah. just not mentioning it. <laughs> All right. No, it sounds like he had like a kind of a mini Austerlitz there, like a surprise. <laughs> 
and, and that's why uh, in April of uh, 1809, he's then promoted to the um, rank of the full general of infantry. So this is a okay. great exploit. Okay. Very, I'm glad you told us that. I did not know yeah. that story. So and then, uh, so and this is this is where I think the paths of Bagration and Barca de Tolis kind of diverge once more. Mm -hmm. And to and uh, we've talked already that Bagration had advantage of fighting in the war of Second Coalition in Italy, then right. Third Coalition, uh, and and leading up to Austerlitz. Mm -hmm. uh, and now here, uh, Barca de Tolis, even though he participates in the war. Uh, and Bagration is fighting too. In fact, he's the one who's leading the crossing of the Bosnia uh, Gulf to, to Stockholm. But right. after the war, uh, Bagration is sent to fight the Turks, and he's given actually the command of the Russian army, mm -hmm. while Barclay de Toli is kept in Finland, and his command is uh, appointed as a uh, governor general of Finland. And so the reason I'm, I want to emphasize this is because here you already see uh, Emperor Alexander and especially his uh, advisor, uh, Alexei Yarakchev, who will be war minister and a, kind of a crucial figure in, in, in Russian military circles, them uh, appreciating Barkadetoli not only as a tactical and operational commander, which they certainly did for Bagration, but they appreciate now Barkadetoli's administrative Kind of management skills, which I think Bagration lacked. From there, though, uh, and I want to tell the story almost backwards because after in 1812, after Napoleon was driven from Russia, he became somewhat of a you know a hero, and his popularity soared, and his honor was you know made public by the Tsar. But I wanted to start with that because at the beginning of Napoleon's invasion, it was the opposite, right? Like he was. He was reviled by the court and everyone. Like, what are you doing? You're, and we talked about this in the Katusov episode. Like, what? Why are you retiring in front of this massive invasion of Napoleon? Yes, uh, the strategy that Barkaidetoli pursues is is very unpopular. Mm -hmm. uh, it is unpopular uh, on on two key points. One, because who advocates it? Mm -hmm. That upstart, right? This non-Russian, German-speaking upstart who uh, is talking about retreat. Right. Um, Barca de Tolí, and then this is, again, goes back to the down-to-personality issue. Barca de Tolí never f uh, fully embraced Russian culture. Mm -hmm. um, he never uh, kind of developed the fluency in Russian. Right. He always preferred to speak German. Right. He uh, remained Lutheran rather than Orthodox. Um, he had this notorious aloof demeanor, mm -hmm. which earned him very few friends. And even those, even those who were his friends, even those who praised his honesty, uh, straightforward character, who talked about his hard work and dedication, also could not kind of resist but talk about, and this is a quote uh, of his heavy German character, mm -hmm. right? That kind of German aloofness, that's <laughs> stereotypical. Yeah. Uh, they talked about, uh, a, a, quote, a German soul and not in a good way. Right. Because they speak, uh, spoke about this German soul, quote, blending conceit with brusqueness. And that yeah. uh, this is a man, remind you, this is friends right. who talk right. about him, right? Right. And so I think when you 
deal with the personality of a commander-in-chief or a, a prominent figure, and that figure is not uh, likable, mm-hmm. then it makes it even harder for you to embrace what he has to kind of tell you, what he has to sell, what he has to order you. So that's yeah. one point. And the second is this. Mm-hmm. If you look at the 18th century, right, and you look uh, at the Russian military performance, they won a war against Persia in 1720s, mm-hmm. against the Ottomans in 1730s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they scored success against the Swedes in 1740s. Mm-hmm. They certainly considered that they won seven years' war, if not for that darn Peter III, right, who <laughs> cut the deal with the Prussians. Right. They won the War of the Bar Confederation, which was part of the first partition of Poland. Yep. They won the Russo-Ottoman War in 1760s and 70s. Mm-hmm. They won the second Russo-Ottoman War in 1780s and 1790s. Mm-hmm. They won this war with Sweden in 1790. Great then point. they crushed the Poles again in 1792. Yep. Then they defeated the Persians again in 1796. Yep. Then they fought in the war against the French. And guess what? Suvorov is undefeated, right? In right. that sense against the French. They can right. only point to Trebia and Novi. And what the ultimate kind of setback, the fact that the French ultimately won in this war, Russians did not ascribe to themselves, but rather to the Austrians and the British. Mm. Remember, the the ultimately the French won because the Russia withdrew from the war or right. The, right the coalition difficulties. And then the war of the third coalition, that's the first major defeat. And that's where kind of really the realization is uh of, of that the Russians can be indeed defeated. But even then, the blame is on Austrians. Mm-hmm. In the producer book, I go into depth kind of discussing of this all-out uh kind of blaming of the those dawn duplicitous Austrians who led us into an ambush and led us defeat because they wanted to strike a better deal with, with Russia or with, with the French. Right. So for the Russians, Austerlitz is a blimp. It's just a, is, is a, is a setback that maybe we'll fix it. Okay. Now when the Finland takes place in 1807, yeah. that's where they're like, all right, yeah, this is the first time we really got, you know, uh, you know, our ass going to hand it to us, but <laughs> we'll learn from it. Yeah, and learn yeah. they did because now they are winning against the Iranians in the war that starts in 1804. They're winning in the war that starts against the Turks in 1806, mm-hmm. um, and they certainly won the war against Sweden. So then, by the time we get to 1812, right, the perception is well, over the last hundred years we only lost one and a half times. Yeah, and even then, it's not our responsibility. Okay, right? it's not our guilt. Uh, I think that's a great frame of reference, and um, that kind of puts me in the mentality, especially of the Russian officer corps, that, you know, I don't care if it's Napoleon or not, we're not going to lose. And Yeah. I so, think there is a wonderful quote in the in the uh, memoir that I just translated where it says, the very word retreat was reprehensible for any Russian. Right. <laughs> right. So here we are in 1812, and sure enough, in, in June, July, and August, they're slowly retreating and napoleon wants to have the big set piece battle which they totally won't give him until napoleon's pushing into russia you know he's going through towns and the populace is condemning de Tolle as this you know a, you know coward or he's in the pay of napoleon and this goes on for a while right until smolensk like people are, yeah. are like what are you doing yeah. exactly and so but think how unpopular this approach would be in a nation that is accustomed to victories that has just celebrated victories over the 
Ottomans, victories over the Swedes, over the right. Poles, and now suddenly this Napoleon, this upstart, this heathen, right? Yeah, <laughs> a yeah. godless uh, yeah. Right? Uh, emperor of the French, trying yeah. to defile the native, right, Russian soil. Um, so, unsurprisingly, there is a great animosity in the public and in the army. Uh, Barclay de Tolly is character, as I mentioned, is not conducive to him liking. Mm-hmm. And then at Smolensk, he makes a series of mistakes. And this is where I, you know, there there is a kind of people who really like Barclay de Tolly and they oftentimes ignore the mistakes that he has done. And I think some of the crucial mistakes that he makes are at Smolensk, where uh, he meets with Bagration. Bagration. Mm-hmm. And here we have a study of contrast in character. Whatever is Barclay de Tolly, diametrically opposite on him is Bagration. <laughs> right. This, uh, you know, this fiery yep. uh, general, but unlike right. Barclay de Tolly, uh, Bagration embraced Russian identity. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he was orthodox, he was speaking Russian, broken, kind of not Robinson broken, but kind of heavy accented Russian, but nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And of course, he has this reputation that is unrivaled. He's right. the man who's led the assault on St. Gotthard Pass in 1799. He's the one who made that heroic stand at Holabrun in 1805 and saved the Russian army. He is the one who was the only one, really, the only Russian commander who emerged with his reputation intact at Austerlitz is Bagration. Right. Uh, he is the one who leads the assault against Bothnia, right? And, and that's a striking guy. This right. dark complexion, large nose, larger than life. <laughs> He's already kind of uh, eulogized by the poets in Russia as Bog Rati On. And right. it's a play on his name, which means the god of the army. I mean, right. how can compete? If you're Bakhray, how do you compete with the god of the army? No, that's not, that's <laughs> and Bakhray is convinced in 1812 that the only way to confront Napoleon is through decisive battle. Why is the city of Smolensk? I know it says it's a holy city, but why is it so important? It is. Uh, it is important because it is, um, as Kutuzov puts it, uh, key to Moscow. Mm. It is essentially the last point on the way to Moscow where you can have a strong position to defend. Mm. In fact, uh, when Smolensk falls, and Kutuzov hears about, it, he's you know he famously says the keys to Moscow is fallen, and then when he takes command of the army, we know that he spends a week searching for a good position. And ultimately the only position he really can find is that at that small village at Borodino. But even that is not a particularly strong position. So Smolensk is the the place where you can do something about containing the invasion. Um, But of course, Barclay de Tolis' hands are, are constrained because of opposition within the army. In fact, the opposition that is so vociferous that at one point a group of officers seriously thinks about removing him from power and, and uh, giving the commander uh, the command to Bagration. Right. I in in my kind of writings, I refer to this as the mutiny, almost a, a mutiny of officers. Right. Um, and so he needs to deal with that. He needs to deal with the numerical superiority of the French force, and right. of course, he needs to deal with Napoleon. I mean. Um, we have to kind of, you know, admit that Napoleon has that larger-than-life reputation, right? And mm-hmm. uh, how do you confront the man who's been crushing everything in front in, in front of him for the past decade? Right. So, 
Um, ultimately, so in that, and this is where uh, Barclay is forced to agree to counteroffensive, but he does so half-heartedly. He mm -hmm. refused to fully support it, and he does make mistakes. For example, mm -hmm. he vacillates about which direction his army will go. He wastes four days in looking to the north because he thinks that's where the French are coming. Then he hears they are in the west. He shifts back. Then he's doubtful whether that was right, so he pushes back to the north. And all of this kind of creates this vision of an indecisive leader. So right. he gets this nickname. Uh, Baltai dai Tolka, which means all bark and no bite. Oh, uh, no. Play on his nickname. And then yeah. it saps his position in the army. Yeah. Um, and, and in society. So even before, even before the news of the fall of Smolensk reaches St. Petersburg, Emperor Alexander makes the decision to remove him from power. So I think that was already going to decide it, even, you know, it, no matter what would have happened at Smolensk. Yeah, and, and, and it was. It was a French victory, barely so. I mean, it could have been a more impressive one, but generals, you know, didn't cut the retreat line as he's supposed to. Um, but it was, I mean, her, her, <laughs> yeah. her, her, horrendous losses on both sides, right? Like 10,000 dead and wounded on each side. Yes, it, it, it is a heavy, it's a heavy battle, not least because uh, Russians are uh, holding position in the, you know, kind of behind the massive bastions and walls of Smolensk and the French are attacking Mm -hmm. There's a heavy artillery commitment on both sides. Smolensk is, is largely destroyed uh, in, in this battle. So uh, both sides suffered heavily. But as you pointed out, this opportunity that the French had to intercept uh, and inflict, I, I don't think it would have been a destroy. Uh, I, I don't think Napoleon would have been able to destroy um, the Russian armies even during the retreat. But it, he would, at, at Valutina Gora, he had an opportunity to inflict further losses. Yeah, but even then, that was mismanaged, and Barclay de Tolly uh, retreats along with Bagration all the way to a small uh, uh, town of Tsareva Zaimishche, mm -hmm. where in August, late August, Kutuzov arrives. Okay, and Kutuzov is smart enough to understand that yes, for all the uh, smack talk and for all the criticism that Barclay de Tolly was subjected to, the essence of his, I think, strategy was correct. Right. And so that is one of the crucial reasons why Kutuzov keeps Barclay around. Yeah. He is still commander in chief of the first Western army. Right. Uh, while Kutuzov exercised the overall command. And, and I think that takes a lot of humility to like, all right, here comes Kutuzov. I'm basically being demoted. Yes. In yeah. fact, at, at Borodino, we, we see his reputation really revive because everyone sees that he's everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, he loses several horses that are shot under him. He's in a half, almost almost every actually, uh, not almost every um, ADC that he had was either killed or wounded. Mm -hmm. So and that just be, and that's because he was in the heat of action and they had to be next to him. So, right. Uh, and and Barclay, I think, kind of rescues his career by his almost complete sacrifice, right? Self sacrifice in this battle. Okay. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, Bar Bar Borodino is again in the eye of the beholder, right? Yeah. Uh, I would say, yes, it's it's French victory because they kept the battlefield, but considering yeah. the losses, yeah, it, was it is a Pyrrhic. One. Horrific. Yeah, it is a Pyrrhic victory for sure. In my biography of Kutuzov, I, I explain this kind of growing 
confrontation between Barclay and Kutuzov over how things are done, how things are run. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and so ultimately Kutuzov makes a decision to sideline him. Mm-hmm. Uh, partly, kind of one of the reasons why these two commanders uh, clash is because Kutuzov blames the fall of Moscow on on Barclay. Right. Essentially, he says, well, if Barclay had defended Smolensk, we would not have had to fight Borodino, we would not have had to surrender Moscow. And uh, Barclay is astonished by this claim because yeah. he knows that Kutuzov knows better than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's and, good to have unified command. You don't want the guy who used to be in charge second guessing every decision you make as Kutuzov. So I get that. I get that. Yeah. I lined him. The only good, you know, the good thing that came out of this. Uh, is that Barclay is so uh, exasperated that, that he sits down and writes a, a, a long explanation of his actions, which mm-hmm. effectively is his memoir of 1812, and we have it. So that's mm-hmm. the thing. As a historian, I'm actually quite <laughs> uh, quite, it, quite pleased. Yeah. So from there, though, um, he's. it looks like he's reemployed in 1813, uh, and once Kutuzov dies in that year, he again becomes commander in chief uh, in time for the Battle of Bautzen. Is that correct? Not directly, right? Um, so it goes again to show that um, there are still reservations about him. Uh, but you're right that as soon as kind of the war of uh, the invasion of Russia is over, already mm-hmm. in December of 1812, um, Alexander uh, goes to Vilna, uh, and with his arrival, he kind of takes over the command of the armies. And he begins to sideline Kutuzov because he has disagreements with which we've talked, I think, last time. Mm-hmm. And one of the kind of early signs of sidelining Kutuzov was uh, uh, Alexander's decision to recall Barclay de Tully and, and Benningsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Barclay comes uh, initially as the corps commander. Uh, when Kutuzov died in April of 1813, uh, of course, the supreme command is given not to Barclay but to Wittgenstein. Mm. And Wittgenstein is receiving that because he's riding high. I mean, he has this reputation of the savior of St. Petersburg. He has this aura of, of, of great commander. Um, and that aura is quickly disappeared <laughs> <laughs> uh, after yeah. uh, Russian defeats at uh, Lutzen and Bautzen. Lutzen. Napoleon makes a mistake of accepting uh, the negotiations right with the Allies. Correct. And that's during those negotiations, Alexander makes a decision to give uh, Barclay de Tolly the command of the army. Right. And he performs well, it looks like, at Dresden, Kulm, and Leipzig. I think so. But um, this is where I th- maybe we should um, kind of qualify his success. Mm-hmm. Um, he is commanding, right, the army, kind um, of the the combined forces um, uh, within the larger army of Bohemia that is that is commanded by the Austrian field marshal. So I think there is always um, Barclay de Tully operating within a larger coalition framework. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the success at Kulm or Leipzig could be entirely ascribed to him. Mm-hmm. Leipzig is a massive battle and Barclay's army is, is a small Kind part of, of it in, in yeah. a large uh, mosaic mosaic uh, so i don't know how much of it we can kind of say that hey that's barclay de Tolly. he drafted right. the plan he did it but he but he is a good manager mm-hmm. he's a good administrator mm-hmm. um i don't think he's a good at 
or he i don't think he has a much of a role in shaping and, and crafting the overall strategy mm -hmm. uh, but he is good at, at implementing it yes yeah yeah the same applies for the campaign in france in 1814 right yeah um, barclay commands russian forces but he commanded within the larger coalition army and he listens to the supreme commander which is the austrian field marshal schwarzenberg and of course don't forget that alexander emperor of russia is always present always there to override or dictate uh, whatever uh, barca de Tolly decides you know now that you've described him like that he kind of reminds me of marshal debu with his one with his aloofness and brusqueness but also that he can implement plans and stick to whatever the overall strategy is. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think that's actually a, a good comparison um, and, and kind of uh, uh, flattering for both of them, right? Yeah, for yeah. Davu, for Davu and uh, Yeah, There is no... They are both capable commanders. Mm. Um, now... Barclay de Tolly never fought a battle, or kind of independently, never fought a battle on this on this scale of our status. Mm -hmm. But his his actions at Cupio, at Hof, um, I think show tactical ability. He certainly has a good understanding of operational uh, uh, skill or, or, or craft. Uh, in 1812, he shows mm -hmm. the ability to withdraw his army. In, right. in the face of enveloping maneuvers of Napoleon, he does well in Finland uh, against Swedes operationally, and oh, again uh, in 1813, I think operationally he's quite successful. Yes. Okay. So jumping ahead to 1814, the invasion of France starts, and again he's controlling the Russian contingent, not the entire Allied force. You know, Schwarzenberg and, and Luker are doing that, um, but it looks like. He's involved in the taking of Paris, correct? He was involved in the battle for Paris. You're right. It's it's a successful battle, but I mean, look at the numbers engaged, right? Yeah. Uh, poor yeah. Marmont and Mortier and Monsey have barely forty thousand, and the Allies have uh, in 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 in, the, in in around hundred thousand troops. So I think yeah. right and the the outcome of the battle is predetermined. It's the <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, yeah. I wouldn't give much credit to Barclay de Tully for the capture of Paris. Yeah. Right. But here's what here's what is really impressive. This is what makes me kind of happy for de Tolle. Um He receives a baton for field marshal as a reward for helping to capture Paris. So if you think about where he was 18 months before, where he was basically fired and sent home by Kutusov, and here you are basically two years later capturing Paris and becoming a field marshal. I just think yeah. that's... Yeah. A, a wonderful story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what makes me happy about this guy, yeah. anyone who is um, condemned to the degree that um, he was, anyone who is accused, there is this famous confrontation at Dorogobuzh in 1812, where um, Russian emperor's brother, Grand Duke Constantine, mm. berates, berates Barclay de Tully in front of his troops, right, mm -hmm. in public. And he tells him, and this is a quote, you are a damn German. You are a filthy sausage maker. You mm -hmm. are a traitor and you are a scoundrel. You are mm -hmm. doing nothing but selling out Russia. Wow. Right. I mean, that is an astonishing kind of invect invective against a, a commander in chief of the army. Right. And coming from the Grand Duke, there is right. so much, you know, there is little Barclay can do to respond. But right. to be accused of 
kind of being the smirts that's the word that he uses this filthy sausage maker right yeah what, what in it what a it's kind of flinging of a of mud it is and yeah. then as you said less than two years later right? yeah. and, and this isn't just some guy off on his own you know he had a family he had a wife he had kids so he probably it probably hurt even though he's aloof and somewhat brusque it probably hurt his feelings quite a bit that not only is the royal court making fun of you or you know chastising you so is the general populace like peasants you walk by are saying why are you retreating you know yeah and, and you're right that he's he's subjected to this public pressure. You know, Barclay never developed this support base within the Russian elite, uh, partly because he was this relatively poor uh, man. He doesn't even have kind of enough money to to have a decent place to live in. Right. Uh, and, and that's by the standards of these grand Russian noble families. Yeah. And yeah. now to see him in 1814... Yeah. Not only elevated to the position of Field Marshal General, but also given the title of the Prince of the Russian Empire. Right. Right. To be in charge of the the triumphing celebration that the Russians organized at the Parisian suburbs of Virtu in, in September of 1815, where mm. 150,000 troops uh, paraded to celebrate the victory over. Uh, over Napoleon and Barclay is at the at the center of it all. Yeah. What a feeling it must have been. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm happy that he got to experience that. But it seems like shortly after, though, his health began to fail. And I, and I think that's that can be said about many of the people who went through that through the hell that would have been those two years of almost nonstop Battle. campaigning. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, Kutuzov dies shortly after 1812 because of his ill health. Mm -hmm. Dokhtorov, another kind of prominent general, uh, kind of gets sick and dies shortly after the, you know, after the war ends. Mm -hmm. Barkai Detoli's health gets uh, really, uh, you know, hammered during the campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, and he has barely time to recover after the war. Uh, he is sent to, uh, to command the so-called First Army, which is in what is today kind of Belarus. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, you know, get sick. Uh, he's allowed in 1818 and early 1818 to leave his command and travel to Germany to the resort towns to kind of recuperate. Yeah. But he dies traveling there uh, at a small village um, uh, just a few miles from Insterburg. And um, the Prussians actually, the Prussian king, upon hearing that he died, um, sent uh, troops to organize a, a guard of honor. Yeah, honor, and then escorted uh, his body back to Russia, and uh, it arrived. The body arrived in Riga in, in June, and there there was a mass kind of uh, commemoration service organized. Yeah, and he was buried uh, at the family estate uh, in in Liffland um, in eighteen eighteen next yeah. to his to his wife, and and relatively young, fifty six years old. Um, so. Let's, you know, I always like to wrap up with his legacy and, you know, just, I guess the legacy in terms of Russian generals and in, in the Napoleonic epic overall would be my question to you. I think um, there is a legacy, of course, is that of, of one of the architects of the Russian victory of uh, mm -hmm. Napoleon in 1812, 1813. Um, yes, you know, he 
he, he's been vilified, he's been kind of acting under public pressure, but his ability to withstand all of it, to carry on convinced in the righteousness of his cause, mm. is a crucial role in, in Russian victory. If, I have no doubt that if Bagration commanded the Russian army, not, not even overall, but let's say if Bagration commanded the first Western army, the outcome of that war would have been very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, he because Bagration was far more aggressive, far more offensive-minded. And Bagration's great credit is kind of successfully eluding the Napoleon's designs, leading the uh, main army to the safety and the fact of passing the torch to Kutuzov. And of course, in 1813, whether he was the architect or just implementer of the strategy that was drafted by the Allies, Right. Um, he was there and he played an important role in keeping the Russian army in the field. So I see his influence there. The sad thing and, and kind of part of the legacy is that um, that kind of the last few months of his life, where I think he was you know, happy to receive the, the long overdue credit, didn't last. Um, mm-hmm. To start with, his name is largely overshadowed by Kutuzov. Mm-hmm. There is the myth-making, national myth-making in place. Kutuzov takes all the credit. Mm-hmm. He's elevated national institution. Um, Barclay de Tolly, um, even on the on the kind of on the, on the, on the more pragmatic level, during World War II, Barclay de Tolly's uh, tomb, the graveside, will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And of course, during the Soviet era, Barclay de Tolly once again was portrayed as a second. Uh, kind of, you know, fiddle to to Kutuzov, right? And it right. is only in recent years, kind of more, I'm talking about less 30 years, really, that you see rehabilitation of his reputation of wh- who he was mm-hmm. taking place in Russia. You have uh, uh, great work coming out uh, from the kind of quills of the likes of uh, Viktor Tatvalushin, really fascinating Russian historian who's done a lot of uh, research on on. Uh, rehabilitating Barclay de Tolly. But we have not done the same thing uh, in the West. Uh, mm-hmm. The only decent biography of Barclay is uh, 40 years old and, and is written by Jocelyn back in the 1980s. And oh. that's reflective of, of research that the author da- done in the decade pre- before. So really that biography is five decades old. So we are in <laughs> We yeah, really so, need a fresh reassessment. Of I was going to say, it sounds like your next book, Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I thank you for, for that. I, I think um, this was a great episode just on a, on a largely, I think, overlooked man. Like you were saying, Kutusov gets all the credit. Um, you know, Suvorov is famously undefeated. So I think in terms of Russian generals, he doesn't get the notoriety that he should. Yeah, and it is. I think this is a, a fascinating study on how nations kind of craft their history, how mm-hmm. they choose national heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that it's not done by just the contributions and ability, right? Alone here, Barclay de Tolly has done a lot to deserve his spot, but and yet he's he's not he's not been given that spot at least not until recently. Right. But it, it's it's gonna opens the interesting pathways into discussing national history mm-hmm. well thank you for that that was very informative and i really appreciate all the details on de tole I hope uh, my listeners did as well thank you <laughs>